Well, welcome again to River Valley Community Church. We're so glad everyone's here with us this morning, worshiping together. We are continuing our series going through the book of John, the Gospel of John, and we're going to be in chapter 2 today as we examine, who, again, who Jesus is as the book of John tells us. So let's go to him in prayer again. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day, the day you have made, the Lord's Day where we can gather as your body, as your church, and celebrate you. Lord, I pray for this time that we, as we open up your word, that you can bring it alive in our minds and our hearts, that we can know who you are and we can respond with all of who we are. I ask that you continue working us in all these different ways, Lord, and I pray everything in Jesus' name, amen. Picture Jesus. What picture comes to your mind? I bet we think different things basically based on our church experience or maybe how we grew up. Maybe there's a picture from that kid's Bible that has just stuck in your mind forever. Or maybe you're a more cultured individual and so you think of Da Vinci's The Last Supper when you think about Jesus. We think different things when we start picturing Jesus. But picture him. And now take the next step and place him where you think Jesus would be. Place him in a setting. Is he on a grassy knoll, teaching the 5,000, feeding the 5,000, I should say? Is he in a temple, teaching the Pharisees? Is he clearing out the temple? Is he performing one of his grandiose miracles, walking on water or healing someone who's lame? Where is he? Now, picture Jesus at a party. Does that shock you? Picture Jesus at a party. What kind of, who would Jesus be at the party? Would he be the stick in the mud on the corner judging everyone else? Or would he be the life of the party? Loving people and meeting them where they are. I ask you to picture Jesus at a party because that is where we find Jesus at the beginning of chapter 2 of the Gospel of John. He's at a party. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 2. And we're starting on verse 1 and we'll do We'll read the first 12 verses. It says this, On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there, for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it came from, the servants who had drawn the water knew. And the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely... Then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. In Jesus' ministry, he did many, many things. He taught about God and himself. He uh, gave pr- very practical wisdom to the people of how God wants them to live. 
And he did wondrous things, miracles that John describes as signs. And he describes them as signs because they don't just display power, but actually point it to who Jesus is and who Jesus was. And so when we read any account of Jesus' life and we come um, to these amazing, wondrous things Jesus says, we have to remember this fact, that Jesus manifested his glory through his signs and miracles. Jesus manifested his glory through signs and miracles. This helps us understand why the Bible records these events. Why do they show us Jesus performing these great and wonderful things? The fundamental answer is because it shows his glory and manifests it. Jesus manifests his glory through signs and miracles. All of Jesus' miracles point to who he is. They show him as that ultimate prophet sent by God, doing things that only a prophet could do. They show him as the Son of God, the God-man made flesh, showing us only what God can do. And so when we read the accounts of Jesus performing these signs, we must remember Jesus manifested his glory through signs and miracles. And that's true when we come to the second chapter of, of the Gospel of John. For when we come to that chapter, we see Jesus performing his first sign. He goes to a wedding and he turns water into wine. If we're honest, that's a pretty lackluster first sign for Jesus to do. It's not one of his grandiose ones. He's not walking on water here. He's not feeding 5,000 with a couple of loaves and a couple of fish. No, this is Jesus behind the scenes, because when you think about who really sees him do this, only his disciples and the servants changing water into wine, which makes me wonder, why would Jesus choose this to be his first sign? Why would Jesus intentionally choose a wedding in Cana behind the scenes to be his first sign, to point to who he is? And I'm going to use that question, why does Jesus choose this setting for his first miracle to, answer, to kind of engage through the text as we examine it? So why did Jesus choose the wedding in Cana to be his first sign? Well, I think there's a big, big uh, element that he has concern for people. And actually, the simplest way to explain this is that God likes people to have a good time. You guys believe that? God likes people to have a good time. God made the creation to be enjoyed. It's why we have taste buds. He could have designed humanity to not taste food, but he did. He designed humanity to have appreciation for beauty. He made the cosmos in such a way that woos us with his beauty. God wants humanity to have a good time. And when we come to this account, I cannot help but think that's part of why Jesus does this miracle. He wants these people to have a good time. And he uses wine to do that. In the Old Testament especially, wine is a symbol for God's blessing and God's provision and the bounty that God can provide for his people. In Psalm 104, uh, verse 15, it talks about how wine actually was made for the express purpose of the gladness of humans' hearts. God made wine to make humans happy. It's made to be enjoyed. Now, it always comes with a little asterisk, a word of warning. We always take God's blessings and pervert them, don't we? God has given us so many good things, and we take them and we abuse them. And so we know that why God has made wine to be 
for our gladness, we take it and abuse it. And so drunkenness is a sin, and it should not be indulged with, it should not be flirted with. And so we know that people pervert God's blessing. But just because some people pervert God's blessing does not mean the blessing is still not there. It's made to be enjoyed. And so I think when I read this passage, why did Jesus do this? He wanted people to have a good time. He has concern for people. And he has concern for these particular people, I believe. For when you read this text, we see that his mom was at this wedding. He was invited and his disciples came along and probably his brothers were there. And so this person who was getting married most likely was a close friend to Jesus' family. They knew each other. They were involved in each other's lives. It might have been someone from his village. And so he was invited to come to his wedding because he knew them. And so when all of a sudden they ran out of wine, he had concern for them because the bridegroom, the groom's family, was responsible for all the festivities, and it would have been a very shameful thing for them to run out of wine. It would have, in this culture that they lived in, it's not like our culture, uh, they had a very shame and honor-based culture, and so a family was shamed. It was a big deal. And so you can see Jesus be moved from his concern with his family, and he wants them not to be shamed by this event, and so he responds to them. He has concern for people in that sense. Then, of course, he has concern for people when we see him interact with his mother. And I love that interaction. It is so very human, isn't it? When we read that, like, if I was going to dream up some dialogue between a mom and a son, that's kind of how it would go. And I love it because it's still so human to me because she does not even ask him to do anything. What does she say? They have no wine. And I cannot help it, sorry ladies, but that is such a woman thing to do. (laughs) I live in a house with a woman who will routinely say something like, I wish this would happen. Or I really want this. And I know she's asking someone, me, to take care of that desire. She won't say it. She'll even deny it in the moment. Oh, no, 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 don't do it, don't do it. But she wants someone to take care of that. Now, I don't know if this is what Mary is doing, but it sure feels like it to me. She's just saying, hey, they have no more wine. Come on, Jesus, they have no more wine. And so Jesus responds. And I love Jesus' response because we can make fun of it. And he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now we read that, and it seems very, very harsh that he would turn to his mom and say, woman, I put my own inflection there, but it's not that harsh in, in the context there. But it is signifying, there's actually, he's saying, hey, I'm not actually identifying with you as my mom because he could have said mom, could have said mother. He says no woman saying no. I, I, I am separating from you to some extent because maybe, as he points to later, his true family is his believers and his disciples and ones who follow him. And he says, they're my family. So he's kind of separating from his mom. And he says, my hour has not yet come. And that sounds confusing to us, but it's a language that he uses throughout the Gospel of John talking about how his hour has not yet come. His hour is when he's going to be crucified, when he's going to take the sins of humanity upon himself. That is his hour, and he's saying that has not yet come. And so he's not, if we must not be confused, saying he was somehow tricked into starting his ministry early here by his mom. But he's saying basically it's almost a warning. Saying, woman, listen up. 
when I do this, the clock to the cross starts ticking. That when I do this, I'm headed there, and you will see me headed there. And so he's giving a little warning even to his mom, saying, the time is coming. My hour has not yet come, but it's coming if I start my ministry. That is where it leads. And so his mom replies, as I think any good mom says. She does not reply to Jesus, if you know that. She assumes that's going to be taken care of. She's a mom. She looks to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to do. She assumes that Jesus is going to respond because she's a mom. But more importantly, I think she assumes Jesus is going to respond because she knows who Jesus is and she trusts in him. We have to believe. I, I believe Mary is a believer in the fact that she knows who Jesus is. She's been there from the beginning, right? She was the one who received an angel coming to her and saying, hey, you're going to be pregnant and it's going to be the Lord. She was the one who all of a sudden got pregnant, who visited a cousin whose unborn baby leaped in the womb at the presence of pregnant Mary. She was the one who gave birth to the, um, the Savior, who, who saw the shepherds coming in and reporting about how they saw the angels, reporting of who this is. She is the one holding little baby Jesus, probably two years old, on her knee as the wise men came in and bowed before him. She knew who Jesus was and trusted this. And now she's saying, do what he says to do. And she trusted in Jesus. So why did Jesus do this miracle in Cana? I cannot help but think it's first and foremost, and maybe a ground basin, that he does it because he cares for people. But there's more to this story than just him caring for people, just providing for people. Because as we know, Jesus manifested his glory through signs and miracles. And so this miracle points to who Jesus is. Let's just look at the miracle itself and what it signifies and how he did it. And so Jesus decides to do this miracle. And so he says, hey, there's these six stone jars used for the Jewish rites of purification. And John, as he's recording this miracle, puts that detail in there for a purpose. It's not in there just because. He's pointing at what are these stone jars used for. It's the rites of purification. It's, it's the tradition in the Old Testament law that the Jew, Jewish people, before they ate, when they came in, they would wash their hands, they would wash their feet. They would even have practices for where they washed the dishes in a ceremonial way. And they even washed, washed their couches in a ceremonial way before they would have a festivity of any sort. You can see this in uh, Mark chapter 7. Uh, the author gives more details about this. And so these stone jars are used for the Old Testament, old a traditional way, a ceremonial cleansing of people before they partook of food. And so Jesus chooses these jars with a purpose, for a purpose. And he tells the servants, fill them up. Fill them up to the brim. And then he changes the water into wine. What Jesus is doing here is really intentionally showing the Old Testament way, the old ritual way, the ritualistic cleansing that you guys know is being fulfilled. These jars are filled up to the tip top until they're brimming over, and only then can Jesus then say, I am ushering in a new way that has been fulfilled, 
And here is a new covenant, a new way in which God relates to you, that he loves you, and it's bountiful, and it's good, and he uses wine to show it. So this, this, this uh, sign, it points to the fact that Jesus fulfills the old covenant. Jesus fulfills the old ways of the law. Jesus fulfills the old ritual cleansing ceremony, and he's now bringing and ushering in a new way that's even better. Jesus is in fact saying external purification rites, they're not needed anymore. For I'm bringing a way that's internal, that cleanses you from the inside out. So this miracle points to the fact that Jesus fulfills all those old covenant regulations and laws, and he's ushering in this new way. And we see his glory because of that, that he manifests his glory through signs and miracles. Now, because, I'm, because I am a nerd, there are actually two different ways people can interpret this passage, and I think they're just really neat. Uh, so what, typically, I bet if I asked any one of you how you saw this happening, you'd probably say the servants filled up the joan, uh, stone jars, and then Jesus turns all that, wine, all that water into wine, and then they take some of that, and they take it to the master of the feast. And that's the typical way we see this, and I think that could be very true. But there's another way when people see this is that he fills up all this water into wine and then the servants go and back to the well and grab water and that water turns into wine and they take it to the master of feasts. I just mentioned this because it's really interesting and they base all that on this verb draw. Jesus tells them now go draw some and take it to the master of feasts and that word draw means draw from a well. You wouldn't use it typically to draw from a jar of water. And so that, if you take that emphasis of this miracle, it means that the Old Testament is fulfilled, it brims over, the covenant regulations are fulfilled, and now where does this new covenant, this new relationship that Jesus ushers in with his people come from? The source. Pure, not out of that old way, but pure from that. I mention that just because I think it's very interesting, but Either way, whatever way you interpret this passage, it comes to the same conclusion. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament regulations, rituals, and then he ushers in a new relationship with God that's symbolized by wine because it's that good. It carries this bounty of provision, a bounty of relationship, of joy for us that Jesus ushers into our lives. So why does Jesus choose this <coughs> sign to be uh, his first sign? Well, because it points to who he is. And there's a third way I think we can answer this. And that is, why does Jesus choose this? Well, because if we knew the theme of marriage and wedding that is is ties the whole book together, it makes perfect sense. There's a theme of marriage and wedding that this flows throughout the whole Bible. And when we realize that, it makes perfect sense that Jesus would enter into a wedding and proclaim him coming to there. So the Bible starts with a wedding. In Genesis 2, the Bible proclaims man and woman made together and God stands over them and marries them together. 
And then when Jesus and Paul talk about marriage, where do they go to? They always point back to the very beginning to Genesis 2. And so we see the Bible starting with the marriage. And then we see throughout the Bible, God uses marriage language and wedding language to describe his love for his people. Again and again, we see how God describes his love for his people as him being married to them. And so in the Old Testament, particularly the prophets, when when his people go astray, when they do their own things, how does he describe it? It's adultery. It's spiritual adultery. That's how significant it is because he loves his people and they're going to someone else. And so he uses this language again and again to point to his love because the Bible truly is a love story of how God loves his people and is bringing his people home. Even Paul uses marriage to illustrate and point to the ultimate reality that God loves his people. In Ephesians 5, we see this. Paul says, hey, just as a husband loves his wife, so Christ loves his bride. And we read that, and so often we say, oh, Paul is saying marriage is a good illustration of how God loves. And he goes, no, Paul goes, no, that's not what I'm saying. Marriage is just based on the ultimate reality of how I love. Why do human, humans have marriage? Because it reflects, it's a shadow of the ultimate reality that I love my people. That this marriage, human marriage, is a signpost that points to this reality that Christ loves his church to the end. And then the Bible ends with a wedding. A marriage. We see this in Revelation. We see the celebration that happens. The marriage supper of the Lamb. I want to pull up Revelation 19. Starting in verse 6, it says this, And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great magnitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready, and it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen and bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. The whole Bible ends with a wedding, pointing to where we're going, that we believers, Christ's people, will be connected always fully with him as his bride. We will be his, and he will be ours as we were made to be from the beginning. Marriage flows throughout the Bible, and so we see from the beginning Man was made to marry a woman, and we see the language is also to illustrate how God loves his people, and we see the ultimate fulfillment is pointing to the end when Christ will be with his people, and his people will be with Christ, and will celebrate with the wedding feast of wedding feast as we sit along the banquet table and celebrate what Christ has done to bring us to that place. It's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's a foreshadow. It's a taste of what is to come as we are with our Lord and Savior as we celebrate this fact. So understanding how wedding and marriage is woven throughout the whole Bible, 
Now when we ask, why would Jesus choose a wedding for his first sign? It makes perfect sense. That Jesus came on the scene and he says, where should I do my first sign? It's going to be here, signifying what awaits us, signifying how I'm bringing you home, signifying how we'll one day eat together in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Drinking the wine of the new covenant, celebrating together as we were meant to be from the beginning. Jesus manifested his glory through signs and miracles. He's telling us where he's going to take us, and he's taking us there, and we can trust in that. This section ends with a small little editorial comment from John when he says, this is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. You see the pattern there? Jesus performs a sign. John describes them as signs because they're not just displays of power, but they're testifying to who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He was sent by God. He brings the new message of salvation to all his people. He is the one we should be following and trusting in. He is the Lord. He is God made flesh. This is who he is, and that's what the sign points to. So Jesus performs signs, and what does it do? It manifests his glory. People see him and know him and believe in him and trust in him and follow him. We see the response from disciples. They believed in him. So when we see this, we see the purpose of all miracles. We see the purpose of all signs within the Gospels. And what is that? To show us who Jesus is. To bring us to realize he is the Lord so that we can believe in him and be saved. Miracles are a funny thing because most time now in our modern day and age when we read these miracles, we cannot help but have probably a little twiggle, is that a word, of doubt in our minds. It seems outlandish. The world will call us foolish for believing in these things that a man 2,000 years ago went to a wedding and somehow could change water into wine. Why would we believe these foolish things? And John is making it very clear. Why? Because they testify. They show us the reality of who Jesus is. That his teaching is about him being the son of God and his miracles validate that and point to that. And so the question for us when we read any miracle or sign of Jesus within the New Testament, we have to ask ourselves, do I believe? Do I believe this is the truth? Do I believe Jesus is who he said he is? So when I read this, there can be only but one response for the believer. That this is who Jesus is. Pointing back to how he fulfills all the requirements of the Old Testament. Pointing to the future of how he's bringing us home. Pointing to his present uh, provision as he supplies us with a bounty that we can hardly fathom. This is who Jesus is, and we believe in him. When we look at this miracle, we also see an immense hope contained within this miracle. For what is this miracle? It is a transformative miracle. Water turned into wine. And when we see that, we should cry out, I need that same power. I need to be transformed 
For I am a sinner, unworthy of God's love. For I am a sinner who's caught up in a routine that seems to defy what God has called me to do. For I am a sinner who stumbles throughout life again and again. I seem to be caught in a loop that's set on repeat where I do not do the things I should do, where I do the things I shouldn't do. And I am struggling with this. I cannot change myself. I cannot wear myself out of this way of living. I am a sinner trapped in my sin. And the only hope for me is if someone has the power to change me. And this miracle gives us that hope, that it can transform us, that that it shows us a transformative power, that Jesus can transform us. What can take a sinner, us, and make us saints, us in Christ? Only Jesus. As he saves us, as he transforms us bit by bit. So if you do not, if you don't believe in who Jesus is, guess what? There's hope for you. Because if you don't believe, you can cry out and say, change my unbelief. Transform me to someone who believes. Transform my heart, for it is rotten to the core, and I need you. And if you're a believer in Jesus, guess what? There's hope for you. For we're real, we struggle. We we are caught in a rut. So often we live through life as if we don't believe. And again and again, we go back to Jesus and say, transform me. I know you are. I wish you would do it faster, but we trust in you. Transform me, Lord, for I need you to make me who you want me to be. So when we read Jesus' first sign in Cana at the wedding, we believe in him. And trust that he can transform us. So trust him and follow him. Join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your word that we can understand you. See what you've done for us. See your power. See your might. See your love, Lord. Lord, I pray that we can be dumbfounded by it, flabbergasted by it, moved to action by it, that we can trust in you and want to follow you with all of our hearts, that we can see this miracle and believe. Believe you're the one who fulfills the old rites and rituals. Believe you're the one that ushers in a new way that is beautiful and sweet. Trust in you to change us when we need to be changed to bring us to the end. We'll be sitting at the table with you, rejoicing, singing hallelujah, that we're included in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Lord, we love you. We seek you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.